Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, November 4th of the year 2022. It was on this day in 1842 that Abraham Lincoln married Mary Todd. It was also on this day in 1979 that the U.S. Embassy in Iran was seized by Muslim students who took 60 American hostages, and they remained hostages for well over a year, released on the very day that President Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as President of the United States. That was known as the Iran hostage crisis in the late 70s. And it was the beginning of this long process of hostility and tension between the United States and the country of Iran. It is also today the feast of St. Charles Borromeo, who is a saint of particular interest to me because my middle name is Charles. I have known of Charles Borromeo ever since I was in the first grade and learning the saints of my name. But as I got older, I began to realize just the importance of St. Charles as very much a reformer. Living during the time of the Council of Trent, he was born in 1538 and died in 1584, just at age 46. And if there's one way you can describe him, it's rising to the occasion. Because on the one hand, you could say he's a product of nepotism. Because at age 24, he was elevated to cardinal. And as a cardinal deacon... And I always like to say, I'm sure the fact that his uncle was the Pope at the time had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with it, right? Well, probably not. He was related to the Medici family and a very powerful family in Italy at that time. But despite the nepotism that this appears to be and perhaps most obviously was, he rose to the occasion as a very holy man, a great reformer in the church, who pushed his uncle, the Pope, to bring back the sessions of the Council of Trent after a 10-year hiatus, and he became instrumental in the reforms. He was ordained a priest after being made a cardinal deacon at the age of 25, and that same year made a bishop and appointed Bishop of Milan, but could not take that role yet because of the responsibilities he had with regard to the council and other administrative duties in Rome. But once those duties were finished... He took up the position as Bishop of Milan and in many ways, again, rose to the occasion. He identified and sympathized uh, very much with the poor of the city to the point that he decided himself to live as if he were poor, giving away much of his worldly possessions and even taking out loans that took many, many years to repay in order to provide for the poor in his diocese. And even when the plague ravaged Milan and many people were fleeing the city, he stayed and looked after caring for the sick and administered the caring of the sick, putting his own health at risk, which is a tremendous example for all of us after the last couple of years of great fear over COVID. He did not have that fear. He was there as very much a shepherd of souls and a great example of what it means to be a bishop for the people, even as he was a great reformer of the higher levels of administration in the church. And he died quite young. He was only 46 years old when he died, and he's 
honored very much as an important saint in the history of the church and very much a man, despite what appears and very much could very well have been the nepotism of family connections with regard to receiving the positions he did from his uncle, the Pope, he nonetheless rose to the occasion and demonstrates that you can see holiness coming from such questionable actions of the church as you know, family members giving other family members positions. He's a man who rose to the occasion and rose above that to be a true example of holiness, of aggressive care for the dignity, integrity of the church, and then as Bishop of Milan in Italy, became very much a, um, a shepherd of souls. But here in the United States, we're going to be undergoing an election in the next few days, and as one who follows political news like it was a soap opera, and for me, election night is my Super Bowl every two years. I don't schedule anything. I like to watch the news, watch the returns, and depending on the returns, I'm either dining on ashes or toasting champagne, uh, depending on whether things turned out as I hoped or didn't. I'm not going to get into what I hope things will turn out to be for this upcoming election, but rather I want to talk about some of the rhetoric that we've heard with regard to this country uh, throughout this election, and especially reaching a fever pitch over the last few days, in which we hear such comments as democracy is on the ballot, as if somehow if things don't go a certain way, it's going to be the end of the world or the end of the country. And that kind of rhetoric is really more or less designed to whip up a frenzy among the voters and give a sense of fear and panic, and perhaps even instigate violence if the results do not turn out the way certain people hope it will. And when I hear such things as democracy is at stake, first of all, I want to ask them, what do they mean by democracy? It's easy to say it in a nation like ours, but they say to the point that it's cliche. It's an empty cliche. Because the first thing to remember about this country is we are not a pure democracy. Yes, democratic principles are at the foundation of what this country is about and how we choose our leadership. And we the people are in charge. The politicians are servants of the people. Judges are supposed to be safeguards of constitutional principles. And the politicians make an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States and live by its principles, even though we know many of them don't want that. And in some cases, many of them want to change the Constitution in order to accentuate their own power or to de-emphasize any threat to them losing the power through the democratic process. But if you know the Constitution of the United States, you know that while we have foundations and democratic principles, we are not a pure democracy because the founding fathers know that pure democracy can lead to, to tyranny. They called it majority tyranny. To give an example, prior to the Civil War, one could perhaps safely say that the majority of voters in the South would vote for slavery. Or after slavery, the majority would vote against anything that is the well-being of the former slaves. Groups can gang up on each other, and a majority can dominate a minority to the point that they behave tyrannically. And the Founding Fathers knew that, that a pure democracy is not necessarily a good thing, even though the foundations and the principles of them are good. And they put safeguards in our Constitution to ensure that while we are a democracy, we are not run, however, by mob rule, in which democracy can lead to tyranny of the majority. 
And because of that, we see many levels of our government are chosen not by pure democracy, even though the foundations of how they are chosen are democratic. Let me explain how that works. Uh, For example, how many politicians want to do away with the Electoral College? Why? Because they didn't win through that system. If they went through the system, of course, they want to keep the Electoral College and they want to protect our sacred norms on the foundation and principles on which our Constitution declares these leaders are to be chosen, specifically the President of the United States. But when they lose, according to the Electoral College, then suddenly the Electoral College needs to be done away with because the rules as they are did not help them to win. To which I say, well, you know, one can feel the same way about Parcheesi. I'm good at Parcheesi. I like to play Parcheesi, and I usually win when I play Parcheesi. And if I ever lose, well, that's because the rules are not fair. So let's change the rules so that I can win at Parcheesi. Or I can win at chess or checkers, or any game that has rules and parameters on how you play the game. And you win according to those rules and parameters. I even played with the family, uh, the game Parcheesi, and I made a point, you know, that's not how the rules are. And they say, well, we have our house rules. Well, again, house rules, the way a family likes to play Parcheesi or any game, means you can't really play with them, or they really can't play with anyone from outside the family, because they have their own rules that they follow, and you come in and want to play by these rules, and they don't win, or it's difficult for them, and so they say, oh, the next time we'll play by the house rules, not by the actual rules. And again, that doesn't make any sense. The Constitution sets parameters as to how we are to choose our leaders, and the only circumstance in the Constitution, as it was originally written, that is done by a pure democracy, by pure popular vote, is the House of Representatives. And even then, it's not the entire nation choosing our House of Representatives. It's each district choosing their own representatives. And that's on the federal level. In states, yes, we choose the governor by popular vote. We choose the assembly and the the senate of the legislature by popular vote. We choose our mayors and legislators of local cities by popular vote. But on the federal level, there are various filters through which the democratic process takes place. And the Electoral College is one of them. And the Constitution states, let me just begin by reading uh, in Article 2. And so I'll start with Article 2 because the presidential election is certainly a big deal every four years in the United States. But Article 2 will state that the president is the head of the executive branch. And it says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress, and that these electors, I'm now not quoting from the Constitution, but these electors are the ones who choose the president. Now, that may not seem a pure democracy, which is why they want to do away with the Electoral College when they don't win and have the just a strict, straight, popular vote choose the president, but... If that were the case, then the population centers in the most populous states of the country would be the ones to choose the president, and the smaller states with a smaller population could be dominated by these larger states. And that's something the founding fathers wanted to avoid. They wanted pretty much as equal say of all the states while still respecting the population but not being a pure popular vote. And so there's that filter that they provided so that a candidate would not focus their campaign for president just in the popular states, which right now are California, New York, uh, New Jersey, Texas, Florida, Michigan, Illinois, uh, 
and Pennsylvania, I believe, is one of them as well, but that they have to go to the smaller states and that the smaller states could coalesce in their electoral votes to outvote the dominance of the bigger states. But you see people who either don't or can't win by the Electoral College now want to do away with it so that they can dominate as populist states the effect of an election. And even members of the House of Representatives, some have even said, uh, one retired representative recently said he wants to do away with the Senate because he said Michigan and California have more people than Wyoming. And it's unfair that Wyoming should have the same number of senators as California. But it does even the playing field. Population determines the number of representatives, but every state is equally represented in the Senate. And they want to do away with that, a more deliberative body that helps keep an even keel to what could be mob rule or majority tyranny from the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives serves as a check for the Senate. And you notice the legislature is the only branch of government that has two houses to keep itself in check. But with getting back to the president, the electors choose the president, but it's not done in a complete undemocratic vacuum. We democratically elect our state legislatures. And then our state legislatures determine how the electors will be selected. And right now, all the state legislatures have decided that the electors will be chosen by the popular vote in each state. But there's nothing in the Constitution that gives us the right to vote for president. We vote for the president and the electors choose the president. We choose the electors by a popular vote. But tomorrow, the legislature in your state could decide that we will choose, we the legislature will choose the electors directly. And they would be within their constitutional power to do that, constitutional authority to do that. Now, granted, at the next election of the legislature, the people may vote them out so that it can return to the popular vote, choosing the electors. But it's not devoid of democracy, but in national decisions, such as amending the Constitution and electing the president, it's the legislature that determines if an amendment will be passed to the Constitution, and it's the legislatures that determine who the electors will be in electing the president. So on national decisions, like electing the president and amending the Constitution, it's the legislatures of each state that leads the way. But we elect those legislatures. So democracy plays a part, but there is a different process in choosing national leadership or amending the Constitution. So when it comes to the House of Representatives, they are our representatives, and we democratically, with a popular vote, choose them. But the President of the United States, while we democratically elect our legislatures, it's the legislatures whom we elect that determine how the electors will be chosen to choose the president. And then, of course, with the Supreme Court, we elect our state legislatures. They choose how the electors will be chosen. The president is elected president, and then he chooses the Supreme Court, which is why in recent elections, we have been told and we realize the court is at issue in the election of the president and the Senate. The president appoints the Supreme Court, the Senate ratifies the, the, uh, the choices, but we don't democratically elect the Supreme Court. We elect our legislatures, 
and they choose how the president is to be elected through the electors. They choose the electors, and they have chosen. We choose the electors by popular vote. And then the president appoints, and the Senate advises and consents on those appointments to the Supreme Court. So, foundationally, there's democracy. But the final choice is gone through other processes that begin with our popular vote, even if the popular vote itself doesn't choose Supreme Court justices, just as the popular vote itself doesn't choose the president. And getting back to the Senate now, the Senate too nowadays, and for the last a little over 100 years, the Senate is chosen by popular vote. But if you look at the Constitution, that was not always how it was. In the Constitution, now I'm looking at Article 1, and it's Article 1, Section 3. The original text of the Constitution reads, The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature thereof. And so originally, the popular vote elected the House of Representatives, but the popular vote did not elect the senators. The senators were chosen by the state legislature. And here again, we elect our state legislatures by popular vote, and then the legislatures chose the senators. Think back prior to the Civil War, not long before the Civil War, we had in Illinois, the state of Illinois, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And both of them were running for the Senate out of Illinois. And in the end, Stephen Douglas returned to the Senate, and Lincoln lost that election. But the thing to remember and to note is no one in that election voted for either Abraham Lincoln or Stephen Douglas. Why? Because at that time, as the Constitution states, the legislatures chose the senators. And in the debates and the campaigns, Lincoln was stumping for a Republican legislature. Douglas was campaigning for a Democrat legislature in the popular election of the state legislature. And then naturally, the state legislature was elected to be a majority Democrat, and they reappointed Stephen Douglas to the Senate. That's how it was done back then. Hopefully we know about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But no one voted for either one of them. They voted for their individual legislative representatives in the state of Illinois, and the Democrats won a majority and appointed Stephen Douglas. Well, today, the Senate is elected by popular vote. And how did that come about? Well, that came about with the 17th Amendment to the Constitution. And that was ratified in the Constitution on April 8th, 1913. So just not quite 110 years ago, 109 years ago, that changed in the Constitution with the 17th Amendment, which now reads, The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years. So it changed from chosen by the legislature to elected by the people. And there are other things in the 17th Amendment, but I just want to talk about that one feature. So actually, it was changed. And the change was now the people democratically elect the senators of the United States Congress. Why is that important? Well, 
if it had not changed, currently, as things stand throughout the states, if it was still the state legislatures, the Republican Party would have a filibuster-proof majority because of the number of state legislatures that are Republican. But now that's not the case, and the people have elected a more evenly divided Senate. But why is it important to note how the Founding Fathers originally wanted the Senate to be elected? Not that they were against democracy, but when it comes to representation, they keep saying they represent the people, and that's not entirely correct. The House has two house, the Congress has two houses the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Originally, the House of Representatives is elected democratically in each district by the people, by a popular vote, and then the people elect the legislature of their state who appoint the senators. Why is that? Because senators did not represent the people of the state, except insofar as the legislature that was elected by the people. But rather, the House of Representatives represents the people. That's the people's house, the House of Representatives. The Senate represents, or at least used to represent, the state governments. So in the Congress, you had one house representing the people directly and another house representing the state governments of those states, which also were elected by the people, but it wasn't a direct democracy to the Senate. Now we have two houses elected directly by the people. And I have to admit, personally, I think the old way was better because the states and their establishment, their government, had a say in the federal running of the the nation, the federal levels of government. The people had their say in the House of Representatives, and the state governments had their say, and it was a back and forth between the people's will and the will of the state governments, even though the governments were elected by the people. And you saw a much more deliberative system in the Congress. Now, it's less so. Both houses are elected directly by the people in popular vote, but that wasn't how the Founding Fathers had set it up. So when we talk about the nation being a democratic country and we are a democracy, it's not a pure democracy, nor should it be a pure democracy. Our representatives are elected by the people directly, but the Senate originally represented the state governments. So there was like that filter between the people who elected the legislatures, but the legislature chose the senators who served for six years. And they may outlast uh, the state legislatures that appointed them. But by the time their term is up, the state legislature would either reappoint them or appoint someone else. And that is a much more stable way to run the Senate. Now, in the upcoming election, we have a number of Senate seats. And of course, the Senate is uh, up for grabs between the Republicans and the Democrats. There's speculation that the Republicans will take the House of Representatives and It's a tight race when it comes to the Senate. It shouldn't be that way with the Senate, as the Founding Fathers put it. They were all for democracy, but not a pure democracy. We have our representatives in the House, and they keep a check on both the Senate and the President, and of course the Supreme Court. All three branches of government 
provide a check and balance for each other. Supreme Court's not the supreme law of the land. They're not the final word, not the final say. And there have been times where the Supreme Court made a decision and the president and the Congress basically told them what they can go do with themselves. And they passed laws that uh, kept the Supreme Court in check, just as, as the Supreme Court in their decisions keep the Congress and the president in check with all the division of powers that each branch of government has. But when it comes to the cliche that we are a democracy, it's true but also misleading. And if more people learned the Constitution and understood how the Constitution was put together, what the Founding Fathers intended and the safeguards they wanted to put into our government to prevent tyranny from taking place even through the popular vote or through a single rule of a president or through uh, the justices on the Supreme Court, then we can understand more fully why they set up the government as they did in the Constitution. And I actually am one who believes that the 17th Amendment should be repealed. Just as we repealed the Volstead Act and Prohibition with another constitutional amendment, I think it would be good for the country if we repealed the 17th Amendment and went back to the senators being chosen by the state legislatures. Because when we keep hammering to people, we're a democracy, we're a democracy, and uh, some even saying democracy is on the ballot, which, by the way, it isn't, uh, you know, we'll still be a democracy even afterwards, and if we don't like how the new government that we elect runs the country, then we simply vote them out of office through the democratic process. They cannot just simply throw out the process of elections. And the federal government can't dictate how elections are done because the elections are conducted by the states so that the federal government doesn't dominate how elections take place. The states can pass their own election laws, and they choose the manner in which elections uh, take place. So there are enough safeguards that the federal government can never be in a position to do away with democracy in general. The way it was done, say, in Nazi Germany, when an election elected the Chancellor Hitler, and he, by his own power, did away with democracy and set himself up as a dictator. That can't happen in this country because the Constitution allows for the states to exercise a certain degree of power to keep an oppressive, overbearing federal government in check. And then the federal government has its own checks over the states. But there's that balance that's there. And so we hear the rhetoric and we hear the, the, the panic mode. We hear the cliches. We hear the speeches. We hear the, um, the, the dire warnings of the end of democracy. It will take a real process for that to happen in this country. And so as Catholics, and this is a Catholic, uh, this is a Catholic podcast, I always like to say, let us Catholics be above all that. Let's not get caught up in the frenzy of elections, the way we allowed ourselves to get caught up in the frenzy of the pandemic. Let us be people in this country who keep our heads, who hear all the rhetoric, who hear all the cliches, who hear all the doom and gloom of certain parties if the other party gets elected. And it gets worse with each election. Let's not get ourselves caught up in that blind, mindless frenzy and keep in mind how our Constitution has set things up. And with regard to the 17th Amendment, in my humble opinion on it, recognize where corrections have been made that should not have been made because, in fact, the more power you give to the people in a pure democracy, the more there is a chance of 
majority tyranny and mob rule through the democratic process, which the founding fathers wanted to avoid by providing these safeguards in the constitutional process where, yes, our leaders are chosen ultimately with democratic principles, but not all the leaders, except for the House of Representatives, are elected by straight democratic vote and straight popular vote. We need to respect how the Founding Fathers put this together because they had the lessons of history, lessons of political philosophy, to come together with this very, very unique system, and we should not toy with it. We should not do away with the Electoral College. We should not do away with the Senate. And we should restore how the Senate is chosen according to how the Founding Fathers intended it. And there is where we will see greater stability and greater protection of democracy and rule by the people in this country. And we will have that rule by the people through direct election of our representatives or through our direct election of our state legislatures, which provide the means whereby many of these other uh, positions of the federal government are chosen. The people have power, but so do the state governments whom we elect to have a say in how our electors are chosen, which right now is through popular vote. The legislatures are allowing for that. And how our Supreme Court is chosen through the legislature who chooses the electors, who elect the president, who appoints, and as the founding fathers put it, through our state legislatures whom we elect directly by popular vote, who choose the senators who advise and consent on the choice of Supreme Court. It is quite an ingenious thing that our founding fathers have put together, and the, not, none of the rhetoric that we hear in elections that are getting worse and worse with each election are capable of really just sweeping all that away. Because if the states exercise the power that the Constitution gives, gives them, the people exercise the power that we have in electing our legislatures, then we know that there are enough safeguards that if it were to ever happen, that we see an end to democracy in this country. It will be a long, arduous process that has within that process many, many opportunities for reversal and objection to stop it from happening. It will be a slow process in which we will realize what's happening before it's complete and have the power through the Constitution and through the democratic process, through electing legislatures and electing representatives in the Congress, to put an end to that, to stop it before it's too late. So this is not an election that's going to end democracy overnight. And for all we know, if it turns out the way many hope it will, it might actually strengthen democracy by making sure we don't have one party rule, even though one party is vilifying the other party and saying that they want to end democracy. There are too many means whereby the people can put a stop to that and could curb any process whereby democracy is undermined or done away with. So I would say if you get the chance between now and the election on Tuesday, read the Constitution. You can find it online. Read the first article, which describes the Congress, the powers Congress has, and how Congress is elected according to the Founding Fathers, and then note the 17th Amendment and the change that it made to how the Senate is chosen and elected by the people. Read the second article on how the president is chosen and note 
that the legislature is involved, our elected representatives in the state is involved, and recognize the safeguards that our founding fathers have put in to protect the foundations of democracy on which our nation is built, even if the leaders are not all chosen by direct democracy, by direct popular vote. It's quite an ingenious gift that our founding fathers have given us that shouldn't be lightly done away with, changed, or amended to suit our own fancies or the fancies of politicians who want to enhance their power because they don't like how the Constitution limits that power or how the Constitution determines how they will obtain that power through the electoral process. These are the rules that our nation was set upon. These are the rules whereby our government governs. These are the rules whereby our government is chosen, all three branches. And just like we would not simply and arbitrarily and cavalierly change the rules of Parcheesi because you happen to lose a game, we shouldn't cavalierly seek to change the Constitution simply because some people couldn't or didn't win by the rules that were established. So read the Constitution. And over time, learn about the Constitution. That's the way we protect democracy in this country. Not by the rhetoric of politicians, but by coming to know how our nation is built and how the government is set up to protect liberty and freedom from what could be an oppressive government. That's why the Constitution was set up. That's why it limits the government, because ultimately it's protecting not just democracy and the process whereby our leaders are chosen, but it's there to protect our freedoms, our freedoms from the potentiality of an oppressive, tyrannical government. So keep that in mind as we prepare for this election, as we go to the polls, keep our heads, look at the issues involved, and pray that in the state of California we see a defeat of a proposition that would make abortion much more widely available and paid for by taxpayers, who many of which find abortion to be terribly sacrilegious and evil. But aside from that, Appreciate what's been set up, read the Constitution, come to know our constitutional principles that are there to protect not politicians and their power, but to protect the freedom of the people who one way or another have a say in the selection of our leaders who lead our states and ultimately who lead the federal government of the United States. So thank you for listening, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.